Well, take your Bibles and turn to John 15. And I love the fact that no matter what else is going on in the life of our church, uh, with our building or with people, individual lives and circumstances, the Word of God remains the same. Amen? And we just keep going back to the Word, and it's our anchor, right? It's the thing that provides us a solid, uh, gr- uh, solid uh, foundation for our lives. And when everything else seems to be all over the place, right, we can just go back to the Word and we can find um, uh, something solid to stand on. And so this morning we're going to move into John chapter 15, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 11, and this is... Um, one of the most important passages in the Gospel of John, and I would also add one of the most controversial passages uh, when it comes to interpreting what Jesus meant by what he said. And so I'm just going to tell you right off the bat, we're not going to get through it all this morning, okay? Uh, You have an outline that has seven points, and and we're not even going to get close to that, okay? Um, So, But just uh, hopefully the background that we do will be helpful in in, in making sure that we do accurately understand and appropriately apply this passage to to our lives. And so let's read it together, John 15, starting in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, And so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Father, this is a mouthful of a text, and we are so grateful that your Spirit preserved uh, the words of Christ for us here in, in, in your Word, and uh, we're also grateful for the Spirit's illuminating work even now to, to continue to help us to understand what Jesus meant by what He said here, and we know there's uh, differing opinions about what Jesus was implying from this text, and I pray that you would help us as we look um, at other passages in Scripture that, that shed light on this passage, Lord, that it would all come together in our minds, and, and we would come, uh, come out of here with the, with the right interpretation. Uh, we know there's always only one right interpretation, but many applications, and so, Lord, we're seeking that this morning, and so we ask your Spirit to help us toward that end, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Bible uses several different images to describe the kind of relationship that Jesus Christ has with his followers. Uh, There's the metaphor of a head and a body, uh, the metaphor of a groom and a bride, there's the metaphor of a shepherd and sheep, of a king and subjects, and then, of course, there's a father with his children. In this passage, in, in, in John 15, Jesus 
likened his relationship with us to that of a vine and branches. And this was uh, not a new concept um, to those that he was talking to in the upper room there. It was very familiar imagery for anyone living uh, in, in the time when the Bible was written because they all lived in these agricultural communities and, and vineyards were, were central to Israel's economy. In fact, uh, a picture of, of a vine was imprinted on their coins um, and, and a huge golden vine was, was carved on Herod's um, temple uh, uh, gates, the gates that went into Herod's uh, refurbished temple there in, in Jerusalem. Uh, in the Old Testament, God depicted the nation of Israel as a choice vine that he had planted in the promised land. I want you to look at a couple of these verses in the Old Testament. Notice Psalm 80, Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. Asaph, the worship leader of Israel, said this, Psalm 80, verse 8, You removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow and the cedars of God with its boughs. It was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. And so here's just a picture of God uh, taking this, this uh, brand, or this vine out of Egypt, right? The nation of Israel delivering them from Egypt and, and, and removing, right? Clearing the land of Canaan and transplanting them, planting them there uh, in the promised land. Now notice uh, Isaiah, turn over to Isaiah chapter 5. And this is a very explicit passage regarding God's desire, um, God's expectations for the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, the parable of the vineyard. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it that he, ex- that he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. You say, well, what is that talking about? Well, notice the next verse. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than I have not done in it? Why then I expected it to produce? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge and I will be cons- it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste, I will not, it will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So these Old Testament analogies of Israel being the vine that God had planted in the land of Canaan uh, are just, um, again, teaching us how God graciously chose the nation of Israel to be set apart from all the other nations of the world in order to reach the nations with the truth about him, that he was the one true God. All of these, uh, these nations that were, um, had, had, they were polytheists, they were worshiping all these false gods, and then he chose one of these nations, the nation of Israel, to show that there was only one true God. And so he lavished them with, 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 with special care and, and attention, and he expected them 
with all that lavish care and attention, to produce much fruit. But they proved unfaithful and unfruitful. In fact, they produced rotten fruit. And so consequently, God punished Israel by sending enemy nations, the very nations they were supposed to be reaching. God used them as an instrument of of judgment uh, to trample down and destroy them and remove them from the land that God had given them. And and, and in a sense, he was bringing these enemy nations to rip out that vine, to tear up that vine and drag it off to Assyria or drag it off to Babylon. But in the midst of that devastation, God promised to restore the nation of Israel to their land through the coming Messiah. And we see that all throughout the prophets, uh, no prophet uh, ever denounced the nation of Israel uh, and pronounced judgment on the nation of Israel without also promising to restore the nation of Israel. And so Jesus is the Messiah that God promised to send, and Jesus perfectly fulfilled God's original purpose for Israel, to live a a faithful, fruitful life as his representative of truth here on earth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? No man comes to the Father but through me. And so before Jesus left to go back to his Father in heaven, he wanted to impress on his followers that it was now their job to carry on his mission and continued to fulfill God's original purpose for Israel by living faithful, fruitful lives so that the rest of the world would see their good works and glorify their Father in heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works right, and glorify your Father in heaven. Interesting. Turn over to Romans chapter 11, um, and this is where uh, we, we, we don't have time to really uh, look at this entire section, but Romans chapter 9 through 11 is kind of a, a parenthesis in, 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 in uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, he's addressing the Gentiles, right? Romans were Gentiles, and he was sharing the gospel with, the, with these Gentiles. And uh, throughout the, this letter, he was emphasizing the, the Gentiles so much, he wanted to make sure that uh, they didn't misunderstand uh, God's place for the nation of Israel. And so in chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, he takes a little um, rabbit trail, if you will, and and talks about Israel and how Israel fits uh, into all that God is doing through the church and during the church age. And uh, and, and one of the images he uses is very appropriate for uh, our text in John today, Romans chapter 11, verse 17. Romans chapter 11, verse 17. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive were grafted in among them and became partakers with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right, they were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. 
Behold, then, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own olive tree? Now, obviously, that's a picture of the Jews and the Gentiles, right? The Jews being those original branches uh, that were cut off, right? So that we could be, as Gentiles, grafted into the vine. But notice is what he's saying here is, is God's not done with Israel, right? If they turn from their unbelief and embrace the Messiah, which the Old Testament says that they will someday in mass uh, in the end times, they will be grafted back in, Uh, to the vine. But that's why the New Testament is primarily focused on the role of the Gentiles and the church, because that is his primary, that's God's primary tool right now for reaching the nations is the the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Doesn't mean he's done with Israel. The church is not the new Israel, right? The church hasn't replaced Israel, right? Uh, In some ways, the, the, the church is supplementing Israel for a time being, right? Until he removes us, right? And the focus during the tribulation and the, and the end times, I think, will once again be on uh, the nation of Israel. And so having said all that, uh, with all, all that as our background, we, we come back to this passage in John 15, and we see that this imagery of the vine and the branches is very rich. Uh, there's a lot going on here. And, and basically what Jesus was doing here. Uh, in this passage, was sharing with his 11 remaining disciples, because we know that one was already, what, cut off. Who was that? Judas, right? So he's, he's talking with his 11 remaining disciples, uh, and he's telling them, sharing with them, the key to living productive, fruitful, God-glorifying lives. That sound practical? Is that something that you need to be concerned about, right? Living a productive, fruitful, God-glorifying life? Absolutely. And so when we read through these first 11 verses of John 15, it would be easy to think that the main point is bearing fruit, right? It seems like every verse has something about fruit. Fruit, 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 bearing fruit, 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 right? It's fruit everywhere here. Uh, Actually, it's only six times that the word fruit is used. However, there's another word here that is used 10 times in these first 11 verses, which in my mind means that it's the main point of the passage. What is the word? Abide. Abide. And so this passage is not so much about bearing fruit as it is about abiding in Christ. Maybe the simple way to understand this this passage is that abiding in Christ is the key to bearing fruit. Abiding in Christ is the key to bearing fruit. Now, having said that, we know that Jesus talked a lot about fruit during his life and ministry. And I think it's important to to interpret this passage, again, in light of the other things that the Bible says not only about the vine imagery, but also the other things that Jesus said about, about fruit, And the reason why I say that is because this, as I mentioned earlier, this particular section of John's gospel has been subject to a variety of interpretations. Some say that this passage teaches that a Christian can lose their salvation. 
Okay, just so you know, there are some that, that interpret this and they would teach this as if you could lose your salvation. Others say that a Christian, it's possible for a Christian to live a fruitless life. That there are Christians here in this passage who are fruitless, okay, and it's possible for a Christian to live a fruitless life. True or false? Don't answer. These are things that you need to be thinking about as we understand this passage. And, and then lastly, some say that not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian. You, you, you probably know where I stand on this already, right? Um, and, and I think I'm just standing where Jesus stood because let's look at uh, some of the things um, back in, uh, in, in the Matthew's gospel, for example, that, that are said about Um, fruitfulness and and a believer. Uh, Turn back to Matthew chapter 3. Even before uh, Jesus speaks, uh, we need to hear what his forerunner, John the Baptist, said. Matthew chapter 3. Trust me, all this background is going to come in handy. When we we finally get to the verses in Matthew 15, it's just going to fall off the bone. It's just going to be like, oh yeah, that's obvious what that means, right? Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, well, verse 7, the Pharisees came out, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came out to, to see what was going on in the, in the wilderness with John the Baptist, and he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from the, these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham." The axe is already laid at the root of the trees, therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Turn over to Matthew 7. Jesus picks up this imagery of fruit, a very familiar passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their, what? Fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. See the imagery here? Same as John the Baptist. So then you will know them by their fruits. Interesting. Notice the context what was Jesus leading up to in this whole discussion of, uh, of uh, knowing someone by their fruits? Notice the very next verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so obviously that is a true statement that not everyone who says they're a Christian is a Christian, right? It's in the Bible. Um, Notice Matthew 13, probably Jesus' most well-known parable. In fact, this was the first parable that he told, or at least that is recorded in Scripture. It's kind of the gateway into the rest of the parables, in Matthew chapter 13, he tells the parable of the soils. Remember that? The four different types of soil? 
Um, let's just read the explanation. You know the story, right? The sower goes out and, and he throws seed on the, out, out in the field and it lands on four different types of soil, right? There's, there's, there's uh, the, the road soil, uh, there's the shallow soil, there's the rocky soil, and then there's a the good soil. And, uh, and, and this is how he explained that parable. Matthew 13, verse 18, hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary, and when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Interesting, Mark says, uh, I believe it is Mark or Luke, says that they bear no fruit that remains. Um. And then finally, verse 23, the one on whom seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. And again, the picture here is the true believer. Only one of these types of soil actually was productive and produced fruit that remained. In other words, all three uh, early soils, right? The road soil, the shallow soil, and the rocky soil all represent an unbeliever. Uh, someone maybe who is uh, a false professor. They profess faith in Christ, right? They say they're a Christian, but as their life bears itself out, they, you realize they're not really saved because there's no fruit that remains in their lives. Only those who continue to bear fruit, right, uh, give evidence that they are truly in the Lord. Now, notice the very next parable there, the tares among the wheat, right? We understand this. We, we looked at this um, uh, several months ago with the story of Judas. Judas is a perfect example of this. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in the field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. Again, the imagery there of things burning, right? Things getting burnt up, um, Uh, is a common theme with Christ. Now, the last thing I want you to see in Matthew, Matthew 21, um, a fascinating parable here, um, using the imagery of the vine and a vineyard. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to the vine growers and went on a journey. Does this not sound familiar? He's quoting Isaiah chapter 5, which we already read this morning. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one and killed another and stoned a third. And again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same to them. And so I think this is a picture of 
God sending, right, his prophets to the nation of Israel, right, to woo them back to him. Um, but they, they, they persecuted all the prophets and they even killed them. Verse 37, but afterward he sent his, who? His son to them, saying, they will surely respect my son. Again, the picture here is of Jesus Christ coming as the Messiah. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? So here is a picture of Jesus was, in a sense, prophesying his crucifixion, right? That they were going to throw him out and kill him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what is he going to do? What is God going to do? They said to him, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper season. Jesus said to them, did you... Never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected. This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Again, another picture here, I think, of God um, removing Israel right, for a season because of its unbelief and its disobedience and putting the church, right, giving the church the responsibility to fulfill what Israel failed to do. He's giving it, we are those that, we are the people, if you will, who are producing the fruit of it. And again, God just, the imagery here is God laying aside temporarily the nation of Israel as his primary tool to reach the nations, and he's presently using the church of Jesus Christ to do that, Okay? Now, the challenge that the church has in being a witness to the world is not everyone who is part of the church is a true follower of Christ. Have you figured that out yet? That's probably one of the biggest problems that the church has today, why we we stink as a witness, right? Because there are some folks that are not living up to the name, right, of Christian. Um, And according to, to Jesus, the way to tell whether or not someone really is a Christian or not is by looking at the fruit in their life. If there's no fruit in a person's life, that's reason to question the genuineness of their commitment to Christ. And so, again, with all these other passages swirling around in our minds, now let's take a look at this passage, John 15, um, and I think you'll agree that it's rather clear what Jesus was saying about the connection between abiding in Him and bearing fruit. And so what Jesus does here is he explained what it means to abide in him and how we know if we are abiding in him. And so I've just broken it down into seven fruits of abiding in Christ, trying to bring these two ideas, these two concepts together, seven fruits of abiding in Christ. And the first one is that we are consistently convicted or corrected by Christ's word. We are consistently convicted or corrected by Christ's word. Verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Again, this was um, the, the last of the seven I am statements. Remember those? We've been watching those kind of unfold in John's gospel, uh, that, that he, uh, ad- he, he included these seven times that Jesus said, I am something, uh, in order to prove his deity. 
and, and where he was coming from is if you remember back in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses asked God to reveal himself in the burning bush and say, hey, if they ask me, right, uh, in, Israel, in Egypt, who sent me, who should I tell them sent me? Because they're going to be asking. And he said, tell them, I am sent you. I am what? I am who? No, just I am. Talking about the eternal self-existence of God who was and who is and who is to come. And so Jesus, by taking on that, that uh, name, he said, I am, capitals, all capitals, right? He, he was taking on the title of Jehovah, and he was claiming equality with God. And that's why, that's why uh, John included these statements in his gospel. So we saw back in chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 8, I am the light of the world. Uh, chapter 10, I am the door of the sheep. Chapter 10, also, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And then here, finally, I am the true vine. And so he says, I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. So the picture that we should have in our minds uh, as we're living the Christian life, as Christ's followers, right, that we're branches extending in every direction from Christ, the great vine, and God, the great gardener, is tending us and using his word, the great cutting tool, to prune us to make us more fruitful. Notice Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Now that expression there, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. This is where Bible scholars uh, differ in their opinions about who or what Jesus was referring to by these dead, fruitless branches um, that are removed from the vine. Well, I think verse 6 pretty much seals the deal. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are what? Burned. Now, whenever it talks about things being cast aside and gathered together and thrown in a fire and burned in the Gospels, what is it referring to? It's talking about hell. It's talking about unbelievers spending eternity in hell. And so... Even, even though that seems to be so clear, right, some think that Jesus here was describing this branch that does not bear fruit, that's taken away. Uh, it's, it's a true Christian who loses their salvation because they fail to produce fruit. There are those that interpret this passage. Well, we know that that interpretation is not correct because it clearly contradicts what Jesus himself has already said in John about the eternal security of believers. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, John chapter 5, verse uh, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Chapter 6, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. And then, of course, probably the best passage about eternal security in John is John chapter 10, 
Verses 27 to 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So we're doubly secure. We're in the hand of Christ and then we're in the hand of the father. And so we know that this is not, Jesus was not talking about losing your salvation, right? Now, others think that Jesus had in mind a, a true Christian here who, who lives a fleshly, worldly life and will have their rewards burned up at the bema seat of Christ. You say, where do they get that? Well, that's from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn over there for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is a, uh, an important passage to understand. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, Paul was writing to the Corinthians, who you know had all sorts of problems uh, in their church. And, and he, he just comes right out and, and says it like it is in, 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 in verse, uh, chapter, one, chapter 3, verse 1. He says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you were not yet able, for you are still fleshly. In other words, here was, here was a, a group of believers that were very immature. They, they were baby Christians, right? And they were still acting very much in the flesh. Uh, there was a whole lot of sin, right, still going on in their, in their lives. Um, and this is where uh, the term has been coined, the carnal Christian. Uh, you're probably familiar with that term. You've heard that term. It's the carnal Christian. It's the fleshly uh, Christian, the, the Christian who's, who's living a carnal life. Now, um, I don't think that Paul ever intended um, for us to take what he said here in 1 Corinthians 3 and, and exalt it to a, like a third category uh, in, in, in understanding where people are at. I've actually seen a preacher get up with three chairs um, in, in, on the stage and say, There's, you're, you're basically, all of you are sitting in one of three chairs this morning. You're either uh, sitting in this chair as an unbeliever, or you're sitting in this chair as a believer, or you may be sitting in the middle chair, which is a carnal Christian. So they basically give you, based on 1 Corinthians 3, a third option. I don't think this was anything to be proud of, like, hey, I'm, I'm a carnal Christian. I'm, I'm good with that. No, you shouldn't be good with that, right? Um, in fact, going on here in this passage, 1 Corinthians 3, um, notice verse 12, if he talks about what's going to happen to these people. If, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as though through fire. In other words, these are, you know, some would say that the, the people that Jesus was talking about in John 15 were those who, who get into heaven by the skin of their teeth. In other words, um, the, all of their rewards are burned up, right? Um, and this is, of course, talking about the Bema seat, right, where we're rewarded for our, our works, not for salvation, right, um, but, uh, but as believers. So some would, would say that. Um, again, I, I don't think that 1 Corinthians 3 passage like I said earlier, it wasn't it was intended to be thrown around to give people some kind of comfort that you're living a carnal lifestyle and you should have the confidence that you're in Christ. Now, I think it's you're living a carnal lifestyle and you should wonder if you are in Christ. Now, others think that Jesus here in John 15 was referring to a 
false Christian, not a true Christian, right? But a false Christian who professes to be a believer and or pretends to be a believer, but they've never truly been born again, and so they'll be cast into hell for all eternity. This is, uh, this is a, the, a category that we've called here before an unsaved believer. An unsaved believer. You're like, what are you talking about? Well, we can develop that definition just from the gospel of John alone. You remember back in John chapter 2, John chapter 2, verse 23, now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, there was a bunch of people believing in Jesus, but he wasn't believing in them, (laughs) right? So they were believing in some sort of intellectual way, some kind of outward way, but they weren't the real deal. And then in John 3.36, John says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. He uses the word believe and obey interchangeably. They're synonymous terms. So we know that true belief, true faith, results in a life of obedience, right? That, there's, that if you truly believe, it will cause you, it will motivate you to obey. In other words, it'll affect your, not just your, your mind, it'll affect your actions, your life. In chapter 6, John chapter 6, verse 66, interesting, this says, as a result of this, the hard sayings, Jesus was kind of ramping things up, and he says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. In other words, there was a whole bunch of people <clears throat> following Jesus around, acting like his disciple that weren't true disciples. Because when the heat got turned up and he started challenging them to consider the cost, they were gone. And so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter, proving the genuineness of his salvation, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered and said, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So there was even one within the inner circle of Jesus, right, who hadn't taken off at this point. A bunch of them just kind of made the decision were gone. But there was some that even hung around, at least one who hung around in the inner circle and professed to be a Christian and acted like a Christian. And, and in fact, um, interesting enough, when, when Jesus actually exposed Judas as the one who was going to betray him, the disciples still didn't get it. In John chapter 13, he, he said, hey, uh, you know, verse 21, he, he said, um, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. It wasn't like they're like, I know who that is, Judas, right? They had no idea. And even after, Jesus said, I'll show you who it is. And he dipped something in, he handed it to Judas, and that was supposed to be the reveal, okay? This is the guy who's going to do the dirty deed. And, and, and he said, go and do what you need to do. And he got up and went out. And it says, uh, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. They thought he was going out to run some errand. He was the guy that held the money box. I mean, he was the most trustworthy guy in the disciples. And then in John 17, verse 12, he mentions him one more time in his closing prayer. 
John 17, verse 12, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. The point is that, that Judas was a false believer. He was indistinguishable, indistinguishable from the other disciples. And again, I think John 15, this, this adds weight to the interpretation that we're taking this morning, that this is not a true Christian here, this, this branch that, that doesn't bear fruit, that's taken away and, 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 and uh, dries up and is cast into the fire and burned, right? What is the context? The disciples had just watched this guy leave, right? This branch get cut off, if you will. Judas is the ultimate example of this branch, Merrill Tenney, who's a very well-known New Testament professor for years, he's no longer alive, but he said this, Jesus' intent here was to show that fruitfulness is normal for believers. An absolutely fruitless life is evidence that one is not a believer. Jesus left no place among his followers for fruitless disciples. The proof of discipleship is fruit-bearing. The point is, there's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. Now, listen, are you always, as a Christian, going to bear as much fruit as you could or should? Probably not, right? And there's going to be times, there's going to be seasons where you're less fruitful than others. And you backslide and you you, you maybe get trapped in some sin and, and, and you become unfruitful for a season, right? But it's not your lifestyle. It's not the way you... Continue. True Christians are represented here by the fruit-bearing branches who are pruned by the Father so they bear even more fruit. And notice the progression here. Um, He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it bears more fruit. And then jump down to verse 8. My Father is glorified by this that you bear much fruit. So there's fruit, there's more fruit, and then there's much fruit. That's the goal, right? That's what we're aiming for as Christians. Because why? That glorifies the Lord and it proves that we are truly saved. And so in order for a vine to be as as fruitful and productive as possible, it has to be pruned on a regular basis. And that's what he's saying here. Uh, Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. And every again, this was a very familiar picture in the minds of these disciples who were hearing this for the first time, um, because every year in Palestine, farmers would go out, they still do today, uh, to the vineyards, and they cut off dead branches, and they cut back living branches. That's what goes on. They cut off dead branches, and they cut back the living branches. And, and pruning, If you, I'm sure we've got some gardeners in here, um, and even some master gardeners, and you know that pruning is a precise art, right? It takes years to perfect. If you're pruning roses or you're you know, pruning trees or whatever, you need to know what to cut, where to cut, and how much to cut. And so the point, though, is the goal is to remove everything from the branch, which tends to sap the vine's power, Right? Why? You want all the energy in the vine going to grow fruit and not more wood, right? And you clip back all that stuff so that it's just all the energy is going to producing that, that good fruit. And so, in the same way, God must remove things in our lives that distract us from Him, 
that drain our spiritual energy and that deaden our souls and hinder us from growing and thriving in our relationship with Him. That is what the writer of Hebrews was talking about in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, when he said, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And then he goes on to talk about the discipline that we receive as, as God's children. He says, it's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with his sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful, and I would add even painful, right? Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards yields the peaceful, what? Fruit of righteousness. And so the pruning process is typically painful for us, is it not? Um, It it hurts when God has to cut things out of our lives, doesn't it? But we need to remember that in the midst of that pain, that God's ultimate goal is to cause us to grow and to flourish and to be more fruitful and more Christ-like. We also need to remember that God is never more near to us than when he's pruning us. You got to get up close and personal, right? When you're pruning, you got to get right up close and personal with that vine, with that branch, right? And so you, you know that God is never closer than when he's pruning you of something in your life. Now notice verse three, and we'll just end here. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. The idea of pruning and cleaning kind of go together, that 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 vine dresser would go out and not just prune back, but he'd also clean off the bugs and all the other junk on on the vine, right? You just kind of run your hands through that and get all that stuff out. So it's the same idea of pruning and, and cleaning here. And so here Jesus indicated that the tool or the instrument that God uses to prune us and to purify us is the word of Christ. Remember back in chapter 13, when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and uh, he said this, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew that one who was betraying him for this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So again, see the context here? Uh, Judas is the perfect example of what Jesus is getting at. I, I love what the Bible says about what the Bible does. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth, your word is true. That's what Jesus prayed. Sanctify them, purify them, set them apart, deal with sin in their life, right, through the truth, and your word is the truth. Ephesians 5, 26, uh, talking about how Christ loves the church, and that he wants to sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. That's what God is doing every time we open up God's word, whether it's in our quiet time uh, or here on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night or in a Bible study, right in a small group. What is happening? You are being cleansed by the washing of water with the word. So that you would be pure and holy and have no spot or wrinkle, but would be holy and blameless. 
1 Thessalonians 2.13, the word of God performs its work in you who believe. Paul was so thankful for the Thessalonians. He says, man, I'm so grateful that when I came to you, you didn't receive the word as if it was the word of man, but you, as it actually is the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. The word is what does the work in our lives. You want to give anyone credit or glory for the changes that are happening in your life, you can praise God for his word. Because that's the tool, that's the instrument. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for what? Teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So the word is a very effective tool, very effective tool um, to do all sorts of things. It's a kind of a, what are those little things guys have in their right? The handyman's, what are those things that Leathermans, right? Leatherman things. It can do a whole bunch of stuff. It's like, the, it's like the Swiss Army knife, right? That's the word. It can do all sorts of stuff in our lives. You need this? It, you got it. You need this? It can do this, right? And then Hebrews 4.12, I love this. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any what? Two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Wow. That's how... Deep the work can go, even down to the, our thoughts and our intentions, our motives, right? It can judge those things. By the way, this is why we place such a high priority on the preaching and teaching of God's word here at Lakeside Bible Church, because we believe that, that, this is the, that this is the one thing that promotes growth and maturity more than anything else. This is it. But in order for the word to do its work in our lives, we need to abide in Christ. We need to abide in Christ. And you'll have to come back next week to find out how to do that. How do you abide in Christ, right? And so let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word and how it does accomplish its work in our lives. And I pray even now as as the word is going forth in each of our hearts that it would be accomplishing your purposes and you would be growing us and changing us and and pruning us and and, uh, just removing those things from our lives that are not pleasing to you. And I pray even tonight and tomorrow and uh, Tuesday when people discuss this this sermon together and they, they think about how to apply it to their lives, Lord, that they would be very, very fruitful discussions, Lord, that would go a long way. in in changing us and growing us and making us more of who you want us to be, especially in regards to reaching this world with the truth about you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.